Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm privileged to be joined by Malika Porat, who's the owner of 4Minute Investing, which is a really exciting advisory business with global reach, focused on enabling investors to feel more confident in their personal investment decisions. And what she does really nicely is distill the ideas of my favorite investor, Warren Buffett, into actionable, practical, and humorous chunks. So welcome to the podcast, Malika, and thank thanks you. for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really pleased to be here. So uh, It was great to have you. So let's dive straight in. As you know, I'm a big fan of the idea of value investing. We've talked about this in the past, but it underpins a lot of the work that you do as well. For those who aren't yet familiar with the idea, how would you explain value investing? The the basic principle of value investing is buy low and sell high. And I think the that's obvious. Like that's how you make money in investing. You buy low and sell high. But there's two other components to it in the traditional term of value, which is waiting for something that's very good quality to be lower in price than it usually would be, and then purchasing at that price. And the other component is time. Like it takes time for that thing to that investment to catch up to what its actual value is or go over what what you think it is. So there's this time component. And I think people look at investing and they go, oh, there are all these traders and day traders and boom, 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 doing all this exciting stuff. What works in the long term is this value investing, which is buying at a reasonable price or a lower price and waiting for a long time, which is what a lot of good property investing, that's what it's about. So property investing is really, in many ways, value investing, but they don't call it that. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. is. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's super helpful. And I think there's so many acronyms. There's so much jargon in the investment world. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the world moves faster than any one of us can keep up with. Yep. So we need an approach that will stand the test of time. You have distilled 10 timeless principles of investing mm-hmm. for a report that I saw that you published. Can you just talk me through what you think these are? The main thing I advocate for to people as for individual investors is to put themselves at the center of investing. So make this, you know, don't just go out there expecting this asset manager or this investment manager to have all the answers for you. You're looking for this perfect thing that doesn't exist. So the first thing you should decide is whether you're an investor or a trader. A trader works in a small time frame, a day-to-day time frame, is looking for a quick return. And that's fine if you know how to do trading. Um, an investor looks for the long term. So decide what you are because you can't be both. You can't expect trading type of returns and then act like you can't, you just can't do both. So you just pick a strategy. The other thing is, I think a lot of people don't look at the low hanging fruit, like looking at their fees or different ways they can actually, if you look at investing returns, it's not just the money you made, it's also the money you can save on not doing stupid things. So, you know, say, save on the low hanging fruit and don't keep reaching for the people are always like reaching for that one investment that's just going to make it. And maybe maybe it makes sense to just diversify a little bit more. That brings us to avoid scrambled eggs, which is don't put everything in one basket, which is easier said than done. The other thing is prepare for panic. Like markets are just always going to go up and down. Have a plan in place before rather than going, oh, when is the market going to fall? 
just have three things. And I, that's sort of what I go through is have a couple of things in place. So you know what you're going to do. What kind of things are to interrupt you there? Um, so one of the things I look at is having a resilience list. So having companies or whatever investments that you know will go down are very good value and will come back up first. So go back to 2008, see what came back up first, and then have a list of, and keep researching those companies because it'll help the anxiety in your brain. Like go, okay, this is what came up first. Like I made money on buying Otis, an elevator company after the 2008 crisis. Like despite housing going downhill, elevators or lifts as the British call them, those companies have to keep operating. They always get paid from operation and maintenance. Even if an apartment building is empty, as it was in Las Vegas, the company has to keep paying the elevator company, the lift company, radiation machines for cancer therapy. All those are going to be needed, whether the economy is good or bad. And so the resistance list, you're looking at basically fundamentals and yeah. what has the sort of strongest baseline demand Exactly. everything else goes wrong. Yeah, a lot of resilient, like what's going to be the most resilient. It, it, I'm not saying it won't go down because then the markets go, everything goes. But like what will come back up fastest because people will realize, well, this just makes sense. The other thing is like think really about your cash and cash-like assets. Like basically every investment manager, asset managers, objective is to have as much money under management. So they have no incentive in telling you to keep cash. And I'm not saying they're wrong. So you have to decide for yourself, like maybe you just have to keep a buffer. And if you look at the really good value investors, they do keep a buffer of cash um, when uh, up to 40% when they feel the markets are going to go off. So that's quite a high number. I'm not saying you should keep that much, but that's another tactic to have. The other, the third thing I advocate is not looking at your phone or not, not looking at the markets more than once a day. Because people are constantly looking at what's Microsoft doing, what's Facebook doing, what's Apple doing. I'm like, don't, you know, if you can just look at it once a week. Like if you look at Templeton, Warren Buffett, they don't, they do not have apps, this data constantly coming at them. With this, So that, that's what I would say in terms of getting ready for panic, which is one of my principles is tame your brain. Like basically there's three parts to the human brain. There's the primal brain, which is the lizard brain that goes yes or no and freezes up. The second one is the limbic brain or the emotional brain, which is like, oh, I love that or anxiety. And then the third part is the neocortex or the logical brain. And investing decisions should be made in the logical brain, but we often make them in the lower parts of the brain. And the way to overcome that is to professionalize your investing. So often a lot of the people I work with are actually in financial services and they'll go, oh, you know, they manage a fund very well themselves, but their own personal finances are a mess. And they're like, oh, because I don't know what to do. Because a professional investor has to sit down, they have to go and they have to be there at 9 a.m. They have to trade, they have to do something. If the money comes in, they have to deploy it. There's nothing versus your own money, you're like, you sit there in the survival brain, mm. um, holding on to it. So just try and professionalize, like schedule, you know, make and accept that that's your brain. Like your brain on professional investing is very different from your brain on your own investing. It's really interesting. I'd always wondered why that was, why there's so many people in finance and investment who can't look after their own. Yeah. But it, so it's genuinely a different part of your brain. That's Gen crazy. Exactly. And we're trained professionals. So I work as a view for these kind of good, at whatever, financial services companies. Um, <laughs> How you want to put it? Yeah. Uh, what, so well, I, so I mean, what you're saying is top, like the top 
financial services companies. Yeah, and what do you do? You walk, you put in your suit on the morning, you walk in at 9 a.m. and you have to do whatever it whatever takes. Whatever your job yeah. description says, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can't say whatever your job description So if you're buying property, if you're buying stocks in India, you have to buy stocks in India yeah. or sell. If you are going to sell, and most of these asset managers like have, they can't hold more than 5% cash. So, you know, if someone gives you another 100 million, you have to deploy it that day. Even if the markets are tanking, you've got to deploy it. Yeah. So you just do it because it's your job. But if it's your own money, you work in a very different part of your brain. And that's what freezes people up. And they just know too much. You know, as finance professionals, you just know too much. So it's really, really interesting. Yeah. So just making that change, professionalizing your own. Yeah. And exactly. People approach. And the, the other thing I see a lot of people doing is like if they want to buy a car, they want to buy a Tesla, they'll go to the Tesla shop and showroom and, and they'll test drive the Tesla and they test drive the Porsche and they'll test drive the Ford or whatever it is or shoe shopping or whatever. But investment managers, they'll only talk to one and they won't do the due diligence. And a lot of it, that I think is because you have to share your assets, you have to share what you have. It's a real process. Though, yeah, right? exactly. So there's all this like emotional stuff going on there. So also um, it's a hassle. It's your time. If you have yep. to waste an hour, two hours, three hours in a meeting with someone sharing all your bank statements with them. Like that's not, but that's kind of what you need to do to make sure. But then I think one of the things I see is people are always unsure they made the right decision because they only talk to one person. Yeah. And so that you're never going to be sure. Like if you, you know, you're like, wait, you're not going to be happy with the Tesla if you didn't drive the Porsche, that kind yeah. of thing. Like, yeah. Um, you don't know whether it's better for you. So. It's really interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted your list. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. And then looking at liquidity and lockup, like a lot of people, they go, they say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go into the startup. But they don't realize like that money is not, you're never going to be able to access that money yeah. if you need it for something else. Versus if you're in stocks and bonds, you can mostly sell in and out very easily. So people don't look at how long their money is going to be locked up. So that's part of my checklist. And one big thing is to enjoy the process. Like the world's best investors, they love what they do. They, as Warren Buffett says, he tap dances into work. And there's a reason for that because it's so interesting and amazing. Like you're looking at all these global trends and numbers and everything, can, you know, you can go and look at anything. So I find it very fascinating, but people start to think of it as a chore. So my thing is like, try and find one area of investing that you really enjoy. If you're a medical doctor, maybe it's medical devices, whatever floats your boat, basically. Like that's what I advocate is find one area that's very pleasurable for you and you know a lot in and get good at that. And then the rest gets easier because you can just sort of translate your knowledge. And the last two things on the list are the number nine is automation. Like there's so many what I say is we're still investing like it's 1999. So I moved to London in 2003 and I had this thing called the A to Z. So if I wanted to go anywhere, I had to open up the A to Z and I had to, you know, look at the map and find out. And then I would just get in a black cab that was really expensive because I couldn't figure out the map. <laughs> and they take One me there. One of those tourists that goes from Piccadilly to Leicester Square in a cab. cab. Yeah, that, that was me. That was me in 2003 because there was now I'm on Google Maps and I can just go anywhere. I can just drive. I drive my kids around. No problem. I just put in the postcode. And I, I don't even know where I'm going. I just follow it. And if I need to get somewhere, I take an Uber. You know, again, I just pull it up on the app and it's really low cost. So transport is completely changed. So it's from 2003 to 2019, the way I move around London is completely changed. The way I, way most people invest has not changed. It's not kept up. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of apps. There's lots of new products. There's lots of things with people. So go out there and automate stuff and try stuff because, you know, just like it took something in your brain to first download the Uber app. And it's very hard for people to do around money, but 
there's a lot of things to go exploring. And my last principle is imitation, which is the best investors like Seth Klarman and Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett, they really want to help people. So they have tons of books out there and podcasts and blogs, and the information is essentially free. So go out there and imitate what they do. And it's out there for the taking. It's just up to you to take it. I really like that. It's so true as well. Uh, it's so many absolute gems in that list. So thank you for sharing that. So no worries. one of the ideas you talked about, which is defining risk for yourself, is especially interesting in the real estate sector. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time investors are missing this lens and looking at headline returns um, when it comes to direct real estate investment in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because for many years it's felt like it was easy, easy to understand, relatively easy to implement. Mm-hmm. And To be honest, you just don't get a disclaimer written above the door of a terrace property. So for most people, it feels like it's easy to identify. It must be easy. Talk me through how this principle kind of works for a real estate investor on Um, a practical level. So just thinking about the people I know and work with, a lot of them do do property investment. And the mistakes I see them doing there is it's always like a friend of a friend. They don't really look at the market as a whole and say, this is a good spot. It's just so true. Yeah. Someone just <laughs> brings them familiarity. Yeah. Someone just tells them this thing. Like if you're looking at UK investing, there's all this data about where there's growth and this and that. They don't look at that. They're just like, oh, my friend told me Birmingham was good, so I'm going to go there. Yeah. I'm like, why is Birmingham? You know, give me like two reasons, you know, and they can't actually. So in terms of risk, it's like there's the value of the property. So what is the Warren Buffett quote? Price is what you pay and value is what you get. So make sure you're paying the right amount. Like Mayfair is a wonderful, like the Indians, they love to come park their money in Mayfair. Like that's like the ideal Indian billionaire thing to attain is like, oh, I have a, you know, but they paid like 25 million pounds for it. So is that really going to go up anymore? Maybe from 2008 to now it would have, but is that going to continue? So just looking at the price you're paying. And I think another huge thing with real estate, which actually saves real estate people is mark to market. The problem with stocks is that every six seconds, a company is valued on the internet. Well, it's valued at the stock exchanges, which is instantly on our phones. So we're constantly getting, like Microsoft will have moved up and down 10% today or 5% today. But the fundamental business didn't change versus in real estate, we have really no clue what it is. You know, you can go to Zoopla and try, but people don't... Um, it's not real-time data. Right? It's not real-time data, mm-hmm. yes. Really doing some analysis around that. And then the other third mistake I see with people and property is this lack of differentiation between commercial and residential. So everyone just piles. I know you do residential, but I know you've researched what you're doing. Yeah. Versus so many times a commercial interest might be better. Being Indian and American and in London, like I'll always, I'll get people in India saying, oh yeah, we were offered like these flats in East London, that Hackney area, they've built up a lot of uh, near Stratford or whatever. And I'm like, oh, what do you think of that? I was like, well, uh, you can't just hear a rumor that that's good and buy that anyway. So that's, those are my thoughts on risk. Yeah. Like doing the research yourself, like finding out which sector you should be in. And maybe it's better to buy um, strip malls in America than it is to do property in overinflated areas of London. So it's really interesting what you say. So I have a small difference of opinion with your point about commercial versus residential, because I don't think it's necessarily that difference in the sector. I mean, the mm-hmm. residential sector is huge. Mm-hmm. I think the difference is that people 
potentially at risk of seeing one market and thinking that's it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a lot of investors in the London market think that there is only the London market and mm -hmm. they also think that London is one market. Mm -hmm. And actually, the reality is there's thousands and thousands yeah. of different parts of London mm -hmm. and there's many, many more parts elsewhere in the country, often places that you haven't heard of. Shock yeah. horror, um, <laughs> which are actually very, very good for investment. Mm -hmm. So I would almost be inclined to say that there's popular property and then mm -hmm. stuff that your family might not have heard of, basically, yeah. or your friends might not have heard of, or your work colleagues won't tell you yeah. about. I think that's the point I was making with the commercial is that like mm. maybe it doesn't make sense for that Indian person to buy 10 flats in in that area of London, but maybe it makes sense to buy shops or something else. Yeah, you know, they just so else. or some other area. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're so focused on that thing. And forget London. Like I don't really know very much about this market other than living here. But in California, like every the Silicon Valley people just keep buying and buying in the same area, like mm -hmm. Palo Alto and San Francisco, and just like do something else. And I fear that there is a problem with it's not actually about risk and return it's about perceived risk mm -hmm. and perceived risk is reduced with familiarity mm -hmm. and familiarity is increased exponentially by family and friends mentioning it mm -hmm. and recommending exactly so one of the risk managers i really respect it's called northfield information services and and they do risk tools for all the big fund managers asset managers the asset managers use Northfield to check. So they put out this webinar, which I really enjoyed about how the sovereign wealth funds are really looking at real estate now. So if you have a shopping center in your portfolio in Silicon Valley, in Palo Alto or Cupertino, the people shopping there, their spending is dependent on their salaries, which is completely dependent on the tech market because they're all working for Amazon, et cetera. So they look at, they try and quantify the risk to the, this. you think you're holding a real estate investment, but actually you're very correlated to the tech market. So looking at that too. And that's at the sovereign wealth fund, like $100 billion level. But what I get upset at, and I hope, like I see a lot of my friends who are not super wealthy and they have a London job and they have a London house and their job and house are, you know, it's all correlated to our London economy. And when they get some money, they buy a, a London buy to let without thinking about it. Um, yeah. Like literally the house next door or something because, and then I'm like, okay, so your investments are also now correlated to the London market. And this is, this is not, you're not some fancy, you know, it's just very risky to me. And it's, it's all gone very well right now, right? Like we've done well so far, but they're buying this for their children and will it continue to do as well? Just to put all your eggs in one basket, I think is dangerous um, game dangerous yeah. yeah or just look outside or just consider you know just make sure you, at least you're aware you're doing that so and I, I see the exact same thing like so i have friends in seattle who work for amazon their businesses their entire income stream is based on amazon and and tech and their houses there and then they start investing they do property investments there too so it's just all very wrapped up mm -hmm. and so and they've done well but it's it's just like you know, the way I look at it is over the last hundred years, there's only one company that survived in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. What was that? Yeah, General Electric. Uh -huh. And like literally one of the top, I think Dow Jones started with 35 companies, was with a leather belt maker for workmen, like workmen's tools. Oh, okay. They completely just went out of existence. So even though we think Amazon and Facebook are invincible, yeah. they seem that way now, just like Hewlett Packard and Sun Microsystems seem that way. Yahoo seemed invincible. But yet in a very short space of time, they do undergo these hard things. I mean, just like we were looking at the, you know, London was just so high up in the, I know, and we are suddenly going through so many problems now with Brexit, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I know it's not shaken us yet, but yeah. So it's just like, don't, you know, it's also, I used to work for Lehman Brothers. 
And so a lot of my learning comes from having worked there, having a lot. So my initial set of sort of work friends was from there. And then I left and came here. And in 2000, and Lehman, one of the things it did was when you got your bonus, I think they doubled it if you took it in Lehman stock. And the other thing they gave employees was the Lehman wealth management team, which was like the most elite wealth management team would manage it for you. So you you made this bonus and it's in Lehman Brothers and in Lehman stock. I mean, I was very young, so it didn't matter to me. But literally, like, we just thought Lehman was invincible, like literally. like. And then 2007, I remember talking to these people and it was September. And they're like, oh, Lehman Brothers will never go down. And it did, you know, so it was just kind of. So I always think about how hard that must have been for my colleagues, the like people I know. And they did get their money back. Like, their pen- yes, it was in Lehman Wealth Management, but it was pension funds and Obviously, not just Lehman stocks, but the, the scare and the you know the hardship they went through mentally was quite hard. Okay, so a key theme in your work is around making rational, not emotional decisions, and I think this is really important in the property world. How can normal investors make sure that their decisions are based on rational reasoning, <laughs> not emotion? Um, yeah. So I think the biggest thing with individual investors is they usually have some sort of incoming investment opportunity from a friend or a, a colleague, and then they just have they feel they just have to say yes or no. The most important tool in the arsenal is to have a checklist, of, and I, I advocate a very simple checklist to just make sure you're thinking about certain things before you say yes or no to that decision, so that you're not saying a yes because you like this person and you don't want them to be mad at you because they're on. And if you look at the big asset managers of the world, every investing is actually quite boring to do in a commercial way because there's this thing called an investment management committee that has to approve it. And you have this huge checklist of things you have to get right before you can even take an investment up. Or you have an investment memorandum that sort of constrains you into these exact types of investments. And I'm sure, I mean, since you run a professional business, you've said you're going to do this, so you have to do that. Exactly. And you can't go, oh, I just, I really like <laughs> this property I'm passing by randomly, right? Which is what, if a friend is offering you something, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a random drive-by. So have a checklist. So after the 2008 crisis, a lot of the value investors, that is the Warren Buffett style investors, they lost a lot of money on, if when they looked back, they said, oh, we shouldn't have been invested in it. You know, it didn't, there was all the signs, but we didn't be ignored it because we thought it was going to go up and the markets continued going up. So it's become very sexy in the value investing circles to have an investment checklist. And all these investment managers will like share their checklist with you. And they're 20 pages long and have 400 criteria. And that's for one company. So I think that's just too much. Like, even though I try and do value investing, I'm not going to look at 400 points. I, I just, my life is too important to me. But so what I came up with was a list of nine things to just look at. So I'm happy to run through them, but um, one of them is effort and monitoring. Like how much work is this going to take? So like my dad loves to do Silicon Valley house investing. And then it's actually a real pain in the neck to manage those properties and do all that stuff. And they keep breaking down. So how much of your time, if, you know, people, they do a startup investment. No, I'm right there with you. <laughs> and, and then they're on the board and the board meetings and the fighting between the founders actually takes up like half their energy. Is that where, you know, so just think about the effort and then lock up in liquidity. How long is this money going to be locked up for? Not just because you can't get it back, but until you make 
a, something that's decent return for yourself. We've already talked about diversification. Like, are, do I have a lot of this? Should I do I need more of this? Should I do something else? Like, just ask the question. And then floor, that thing is like, how low can this go? Like, say, you know, say Brexit does happen in this awful way. How much is it going to fall? Like, is it going to be 10% or 20%? Have that number in your head. Can you tolerate that? And then um, price, again, like price is what you pay, value is what you get. Like, are you paying the right price? Like, you might be acquiring this flat in Mayfair, but are you paying the right price for what you're acquiring? And then fees, like look at the transaction costs and the all those things. That's what professional investors do. And people will say, oh, yes, this is the return I'm going to make on this. And then they do not calculate in the fees the year and the yearly fees and the HMOs and the all these yeah. <laughs> all these things that will add in. The last three things are FOMO, fear of missing out. So make sure there's not some element of that, or if there is, that you acknowledge it, that you're not doing this because all your colleagues are doing it. People don't think about taxes. So think about what will you owe if you, people get very obsessed with tax efficiency, but then when they're making an investment, they almost never think about the tax implications of when they're doing it for their personal accounts. And the last thing you should think about, I think, is long-term return which is usually the only thing people think about, like the highest. And what are the chances you'll get that? What are the chances? What is the range of returns you could get? And price that in. Fantastic. Super helpful. All right. Well, if listeners want to reach out or follow what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I run these seminars in London once a month. And if you want to know when the next one is, you can email me at Malika, which is M-A-L-L-I-K-A, at 4minuteinvesting, all one word, dot com and uh fantastic thank you so much for yeah uh, thank you so much for sharing your so many valuable insights i'm probably going to listen to that one three times <laughs> seriously it's really really oh i also have a book coming out i'll just drop that in uh, Why how, how, how the best <laughs> because I've, i'm so part of me that i've forgotten so how the best and best is hopefully coming out in october so fantastic fantastic yeah. oh i'm looking forward to that yeah thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me anna thank you bye Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.